Let's see, if you want a title, it might be Pride or Love, or Motivated by Pride or Through Love, one or the other. Now, I want to begin by turning to, uh uh-oh, I didn't put the reference. Man, how did I miss that? Okay, it's now to, as, it, this is the King James. Now, as touching things offered into idol, we know that we all have knowledge. Oh. Yeah, knowledge puffs up, <laughs> but charity edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. Now, I want to read that from the contemporary English version. It says this. Listen closely. In your letter, you asked me about foods offered to idol. That's not what I want to get to, but this, this is the next point. All of us know something about this subject, but knowledge makes us proud of ourselves, while love makes us helpful to others. Let's, let's listen to that again. Sorry, I can't give you the scripture. All right. Knowledge makes us proud of ourselves, while love makes us helpful to others. Now, if you think about the knowledge that makes us different, think about that. What's the knowledge that makes us different? We could go through a list. The Sabbath, that's knowledge. Is it good knowledge? Is it right knowledge? Well, yeah, it's the truth. But it makes us different. The holy days, that's knowledge. Makes us different. The food laws, that also makes us different. Did anybody find that scripture? 1 Corinthians 8, 1. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. Let me write that down. Okay. And what we were discussing there was that phrase in the contemporary English version, version that says, Knowledge makes us proud of ourselves. Loves make, love makes us helpful to others. So we're listing the list of knowledge that makes us different. And we're talking about, okay, the Sabbath makes us different, the holy days, the food laws, the kingdom of God on this earth. That, that is a different, you know, sort of a different teaching. Uh, God is only now calling a first fruit. That also, that's knowledge that makes us different. Not believing in heavenly retirement, not believing in, in eternal damnation of the wicked, but they will be destroyed. Uh, not keeping the holidays of our society. All of these things sort of makes us different, does it not? But here's the question. Does it make us proud? Does it make us proud? And I'm afraid that the answer to that question in the churches of God is often yes. Yes, it does. I've seen it for the 23 years I've been in the church of God. Pride. Pride specifically because of knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Okay? But love is helpful. Helping people. Help one another. Now, the way that you find out if you're proud, knowledge makes us proud of ourselves, love makes us helpful to others, is to ask your question, are you helpful in helping others to understand God better? Are you helpful in helping others understand God better? You know, I've got a program. Is that really in the Bible? And there are times I'm helpful at helping others to understand God better, but there are other times when I allow pride to motivate what I'm saying and turn people off. In other words, if you have turned off every person you ever met, if you've turned off all your family members, 
If you've turned off your husband and your wife and your children, if you're condescending towards others, if you look at people because of their lack of knowledge as idiots, stupid, or ignorant, you are proud. You are eaten up with pride. So it's one or the other, you know, how we approach this subject of, our, of the truth that God has given to us. Knowledge makes us proud of ourselves. Yeah, and just because you're a Christian, just because you have the Spirit of God, you can go through life, through this calling, proud of the knowledge. You are up above others. And you look down your nose at other religious people. I know it because I've been there. Okay? Knowledge makes us proud of ourselves. Love makes us helpful to others. Are you operating out of love or pride? You know, when it comes to outreach, evangelism, man, this is a critical issue that we have to deal with. When it comes to trying to attract people, when it comes to trying to fill a church, which basically we haven't done a very good job at. And I take full responsibility. Well, not full responsibility, but I take a certain amount of responsibility for this, you know, being the servant of the church. But still, uh, truth of the matter is, we've had people come here and we've had people leave. And we, I think, personally, have ran off people uh, because it didn't stick. And, uh, you know, that's another issue that probably could be discussed. But again, knowledge makes us proud of ourselves. And let me tell you, people can detect that a mile off if they come into your congregation and you are prideful. Love makes us helpful to one another. I am helping you. Now let's take a look at Mark 9 and verse 38. Mark 9 and verse 38. I love this passage because it's sort of the description of a lot of, a lot of churches of God, a lot of issues that we've dealt with. Mark 9 and verse 38, and I did get that scripture reference right. I wrote it down. <laughs> you know, it's just the issue of copy and paste. <laughs> how I missed, I missed that. Uh, I know how I missed it now. I, I missed it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mark 9 and verse 38. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name, and he followed not us. And we forbade him because he followed not us. Man, you know, he don't think the same way we do. He don't believe the same way. He's not one of us. And we rebuked him and said, get out of here. You can't do this, you know. But Jesus said, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can speak lightly, speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. Question. Are other religious people that don't believe the same way you do, are they, you know, are they against us? No, they're not against us at all. They're on our side, actually. Often we just don't realize it. How do you view other religious people that don't agree with you? <clears throat> Truth of the matter is, we have more in common with mainstream Christianity than we have, you know, un uncommon issues. We have more in common. But why do we focus on what we don't have in common? The answer, pride. That's the reason we don't focus on what we have more in common. And I, I'd be honest with you, I mean, you know, my program, often I have taken the differences. Now, I think the differences need to be talked about, but why? Why did I start out with the differences? I don't, I don't do it all the time. I mean, don't, don't misunderstand me. But, you know, 
often I have started out with a difference. Now, I want to read you something from a magazine. I'll tell you where it's from. It's, um, well, you might be amazed at where it's from, but I'll tell you, and the author of it also at the end of this. It says, The Law of God and Today's Churches is the title of this magazine, the title of this article. Why both Old and New Covenant conforms us into the image of Jesus. Listen closely. It says, God wants a people who have absorbed his law into their inner beings. As I go through this, ask yourself, do you agree or disagree with this? He wants a people who embodies the law and don't just observe it as a matter of obligation. The law of God lives in them, delights them, comprises their meditation, and makes them into people given to our God, given to God, excuse me. In fact, one of the things that so moves me about Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 is how in one sentence, God says he will put my law within them and write it in their hearts. And in the next sentence, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. There is an unmistakable emphasis on the heart relationship here. God is clearly saying that people of the new covenant will be a people whose heart and minds are filled with the revelation of God through his law. And that this will be part of a living relationship with him. Once we glimpse this vision of God's law in our hearts, still quoting, we can begin to understand the glory of Psalms 119. You know Psalms 119, it's all about the law of God. This is the longest psalm in the entire book of the, of the Psalms, and it is completely devoted to delighting in the law of the Lord. It would be easy for a Christian to look upon this and think it is just an Old Testament sentiment for an Old Testament people who haven't been touched by grace. But that's not what we should conclude once we have read the words of Jeremiah I cited above. Once we have this law and relationship vision in our heart, we can enter into the psalmist's delight in the law of the Lord. The psalmist has found what a new covenant believer is supposed to find in the law of God. He has discovered that the law is a revelation of the God whom he loves. He has found that there is power and life in the law of God. The psalmist meditates upon the law and celebrates the law. He loves the law because it reveals God. It shows the way of God. The law of the Lord has become his delight. This was a close, as close as he could come to this kind of intimate personal relationship a new covenant believer has with God. God does not give us his spirit to free us from moral absolutes. He gives us his spirit so that we, so we are transformed to the point that we, are fulfilled, that we fulfill his moral absolute. He yearns to do his will. This is what those that advocate for a hyper-grace-liberty-at-all-costs perspective misunderstand. We are saved and filled with the Spirit so that we are transformed into God's image. As that process unfolds, we are passionate to please the Father and to do His will. This means we delight in the law and His de de decrees of God. We aren't saved and filled with the Spirit to pursue our own interests, our own passions, or our, or our own pleasure. All right, much, still quoting, much of the law and grace debate in our time is simply a debate over the what the gospel is. 
Do we believe in the faith which was once delivered to the saints, or do we embark trendy, watered-down motivational talks? Do we preach a costly gospel that calls for repentance and a life of surrender, or do we commit to a materialistic, self-centered pablum of most churches today? Uh, do we build upon the Bible, or do we build upon the shifting sand of modern culture? I am for, concluding here, I am for the gospel of Jesus, the hardcore, unvanished, varnished gospel of the risen Christ. And because I am for that gospel and no other, I do not believe the gospel abolishes the moral law of God. And this article is from Charisma magazine. Now, I've never, I always thought charisma is a little bit of, a lot of liberty there with, with Christian thinking. The author is Rod uh, Parsley. You've probably seen him on TV maybe before. And when I read that, I thought, you know, I read this article and I thought, what do I disagree with? I don't disagree with any of it. Okay? You know, I, I don't, I can't find anything I actually disagree with. Now, you know, we can say, well, they're not doing certain things, but that, that's okay. That's okay. At the feast this year, the guy that spoke with the Sabbath Association, I forget his name, uh, Kelly McDonald, okay. He was mentioning about, you know, the Sabbath and, and talking about that issue. And he said, we cannot be, this is what struck me, condescending. As God, we cannot be condescending. And, you know, I had on one of my videos a long time ago, they, they said, it's, it's, it was a good message. But you're a little bit condescending. <laughs> you know, and I thought about that. And the truth of the matter is, I have been condescending. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I need to go back and redo how to begin a relationship with God without church and religion because in that issue, condescending. I need to go back and redo excuses for not keeping the Sabbath. Why? Because I've been condescending. I don't have to be. You don't have to be condescending. You can, I can take the exact same material, which I thought was good material, and just redo it without the condescending attitude. Just totally redo it. Exact same message, but you don't have to be condescending. And I've heard preachers of our tradition talk about, you know, well, Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal as an excuse to be condescending. Uh, <laughs> but you see, Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal he didn't mock the real God, <laughs> you know. That's the difference, you know. You don't have to be condescending. Do we help others? It's, it's almost as if this needs to be said. We worship the same God that Christians worship. Why would I have to say that, you know? But it needs to be said. We worship the same God that Christians are worshiping. It's just different levels of understanding. You know, maybe God's graced you with some understanding that he hasn't graced somebody else with. That's good. But how do you handle it? Pride? Condescending toward others? You know, Ron Dart mentioned one time, and I thought it was a beautiful example. He talked about how God used the Baptist church to bring him. There were steps that he made along the way. You know, maybe this church, that church. God used the Baptist church to teach him. They memorized scriptures in church. They, he, a lot about the Bible he learned from the Baptist. And then he went to this level and that level and that level. You know, we're all on this, this journey 
of getting closer to God. We really are. What keeps us from being helpful, truly helpful, in the area of outreach, in the area of, relig- of, of evangelism? Well, again, I know I'm repeating myself. Knowledge makes us proud of ourselves. Love makes us helpful to others. Number one, what keeps us from being helpful? I think this is helpful, number one. Acknowledging that people in God's church don't have all truth. We don't have it all. You need to acknowledge, it takes humility to acknowledge that. We don't have all truth. If you think you do, you are really full of pride. You know? <laughs> and I don't like that statement, people in God's church. This is really going to blow your mind. Other Christians that disagree with us are also in God's church. They're just on a journey, and you, you, maybe you have a little bit more than they have in their area with it, but they're also in God's church. A lot of, probably a lot of people in John's church would disagree with that. Oh, no, we're the one. We're the chosen. We're the called out one. We're the elite. You know, we're, we're, okay, go ahead and run with that. Two, the truth that you have may need some adjustment. Uh, how, how, what keeps it from being helpful? Well, the fact that the truth that you have may need some adjustment. Truth without love, you're not doing a bit of good. You may have truth. But if it doesn't have charity, it's not doing you or the person you're trying to minister to a bit of good. Truth, third point, must encompass hope. Boy, I don't know how I overlooked this. We live in a world that is desperate for hope. You know, if you can get some hope. People that, you know, end their lives have lost all hope. And we live in a hopeless society. You know, I was thinking about this in dealing with health issues. I thought, what I need is some hope. It's amazing when someone comes along and and something gives you some hope. And you think, yeah, it tastes so good. But we live in a hopeless society. And we need to be able, truth must encompass hope. Truth about the Sabbath, hope. Truth about the Holy Day, hope. Truth about the dietary, hope. Truth, whatever it is, you've got to give people hope. Just presenting facts. This is what the Bible says. You're wrong and I'm right. That's not going to get you anywhere. There's no hope there. There's no hope. Truth must encompass hope. Now, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. The Sabbath. You know, I talked to... The Sabbath is really, you know, as far as our society, it's a stress-free day. How valuable is that? How... You think there's somebody out there that might need to know that, that the Sabbath can be a stress-free day? And I talked about it at the feast. I talked about taking my Sabbath off, and I talked about my blood pressure, and I talked about a day of no responsibility and what that meant for me. And just, I, I don't know, it, was, it totally gave me a different perspective and how I overlooked R-E-S-T for 20 years. <laughs> how I missed that is beyond me. God rested. On the seventh day, you know, he, and I, you know, I don't know how I missed, but you see, in a hopeless society, the Sabbath can be a stress-free day that reboots your mental, your mental, physical, emotional, that reboots you mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You cannot sell truth unless you, at the end of it, give people hope. You just can't. Just, just write that down. You cannot sell truth without hope. 
You can try. You can tell people they're wrong. You can correct them. You can show them scripture. But unless you give them hope, you can't sell it. And I think, you know, that, that's something. Have I done that? Have I done that with sermons? Have I done that with outreach? No, I haven't always done that. End it with hope. How, you know, you've got to give people something to cling to. If you want to sell truth, give them hope. But you've got to connect it to. Truth and hope. Why do you need this? Why do you need the Sabbath? Well, it's stress-free. I mean, my goodness. What does our society need? Our society needs to hear this message about the benefits of keeping the Sabbath. Okay, what keeps us from being helpful? And knowledge makes us proud of ourselves. Love makes us helpful to others. Here's a scripture. James 3 and verse 17. And I don't know if I've always taken this as instructions for building a sermon, instructions for building an outreach program. I don't know if I've always... I know this scripture's in the Bible. But have we applied it? James 3 and verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. I might add, without being condescending. You know? And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Is that my goal? Is that our goal, to make peace with people we're trying to reach? It should be. You know, all of life's problems are a failure to apply a biblical principle. Every life's problem is a failure to apply a biblical principle. You know, you may not know where it's at. A lot of times, but a lot of times things just can click like this. And, and this can click. Okay, how do I present myself? How do I minister to other people? But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. What else keeps us from being helpful? Number five, the illusion that we are right now in God's true church. Now, don't don't get ahead of me. Here's the problem. Too many people in God's church, you know, I'm in the truth. I'm in the church. You know, once you accept this in your mind, okay, I am right now in God's true church, often what that leads to is disdain for other Christians. You look down your nose at them when when you simply say, okay, the illusion that we are right now in God's church. You know, I tell you what I like to tell people. I'm in the true church. I mean, if it's God's church, obviously it's true, which God is now building. A little bit different. I'm in God's true church, which God is now building. Jesus said, I will build my church. Emphasis on, I will build. Not, I have built. Not, my church is now complete. I will build my church. Let's take a look at the church. I love this verse, Hebrews 12 and verse 23. What does it look like? What does God's church really look like? When will you truly arrive in God's true church is the question. I'm going to tell you I'm not there yet. <clears throat> okay, Hebrews 12 and verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. There's your true church. I'm not there yet because I'm not a firstborn yet, and I'm not yet.
true church is a work in progress. You can be a part of it, but you have not arrived. You, you understand? You can be a part of it, yes, but you have not arrived. And that's, that's the illusion that a lot of people, that's the illusion a lot of Christians have out there. A lot of, and, and it's so in our, trust, our church also. I have arrived. Once you get to that point where you think you have arrived, spiritual growth is, is dead. There is no more spiritual growth. Jesus said, I will build, I will build my church. It's a work in pro- progress. So what, I'm, what am I saying? What am I saying? You can be a part of this church, but you have not arrived. You know, here's, here's my heart's desire. The Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Catholic, I hope they arrive also. I hope they arrive also. My in-laws that believe differently than I, I hope they arrive also at this church. The church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. I hope they arrive. Rod Parsley wrote this article. I hope he arrives. The Christians that contribute to this magazine don't always agree with everything they say, but I hope they arrive. Joel Alstein. I hope he arrives. All Sunday keepers, I hope they arrive at the same destination, the church of God. All Christians that celebrate pagan holidays, (laughs) I hope they arrive at the same event, the church of God, the church of the first fruits, whose spirit has been made perfect Ephesians 4 and verse 13. Let's turn there. Ephesians 4 and verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. You know, let's start including not just ourselves but other Christians in this equation. (laughs) Let's not just look at this. This is for us. But let's look at other Christians also are on this journey till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God and to a perfect man. Because, you know, you really won't realize your need to evangelize if you're just, if you, if you're, if you excluded others, you know. We don't need to do that. Let's start including not just ourselves but other Christians. Let us pray for them and let them pray for us. Let them pray for me. Let us sell the truth that God has revealed with great hope. Because if you can't make that connection, you're not going to sell it. This is the hope that you should have. I, you know, this is wonderful information. It can give you hope. Again, knowledge makes us proud of ourselves. Love makes us helpful to others.